Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. As the year comes to a close, our staff is writing about our favorite sports moments of 2019. Jason Concepcion explains the year in 10 pieces of pop culture, and we break down the last 10 years of the Marvel Universe. Also, ahead of the new Star Wars movie coming out next week, the staff's discussing Baby Yoda, Rise of Skywalker romances, and what the Resistance will do if they win. You can check this all out on TheRinger.com. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the vulgar auteur himself, Michael Bay. That's right. Michael Bay has made a new movie. It's called Six Underground. It's, and it's- the six, bitch! <laughs> okay. Six <laughs> Underground is on Netflix right now. Joining us to discuss this movie is Chris Ryan. He's going to be sharing some feelings emanating from his exploding heart. Later in the show, I'll have an interview with Paul Walter Hauser, the star of Richard Jewell. You may remember Paul from I, Tanya and Black Klansman. He's really great in Clint Eastwood's new movie, and he's really one of the most entertaining people we've ever had on this show, so I hope you'll stick around for that conversation. We'll talk about that movie next week, Amanda and I, and maybe Bombshell as well, but speaking of Bombshells, Six Underground. Let's go. Let's do this. Who is Michael Bay? Chris, how do, how do you answer that question? He's a... A circus leader. He's a carnival barker. And he's a cinematic genius. Amanda? I would say he's Sean's favorite filmmaker. <laughs> this is this is nice. Sean is just going to have a nice, happy time. And Chris and I are here to support you. Thank you. He is a, a visionary. <laughs> that is for sure. Of what is something we're going to discuss on this podcast. But he has a very specific film language. And, you know... He, he he does a lot with it. He certainly does. Michael Bay is a 54-year-old man, born and raised in Los Angeles, California. He's made a great many films that a great many people have seen. I suspect a lot of the listeners of this show are familiar with his work. But he's fallen a bit on deaf ears he's and He's been on and, the dark side eyes. of the moon, bro. Yeah. yeah. He's gotten caught up in some stuff in the last 10 years that I'm not thrilled about. But let's just run very quickly through his CV. He, after a very successful career as a commercial and music video director... Made his debut with Bad Boys in 1995, which kicks ass. He then made a film called The Rock, another film that Classic. kicks ass. Yeah. He followed it up with Armageddon, one of the totemic films of the late 90s, and a big movie for many people who work here at The Ringer. Incredible stuff. He then made a movie called Pearl Harbor, which we don't talk about on this podcast. And then he made Bad Boys 2. That's an incredible run. Mm-hmm. If he died the moment that production wrapped <laughs> after Bad Boys 2, we'd be like, this guy. And I'm kind of surprised he didn't. It, it, he, he has, obviously, an insane, operatic, ridiculous, oftentimes quite bad and incoherent filmmaking style that I still find immensely thrilling, that is aesthetically joyful to me. And I'm not saying he's smart. I'm not saying he is a brain genius of story. A brain genius. A brain genius. I'm not saying he's one of those things. No. But he is able to do things in his movies that send chills down my spine. and. His later films after this period are a little bit complicated because he got he got caught up in Transformers world. Yeah. And he made four Transformers movies. Five Transformers movies? Five. I, he directed all of them, didn't he? Yeah. And God, so many Transformers. Some of them movies. are actually pretty good. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I gotta admit, I haven't revisited them. Well, I, I profiled Bay in, in uh I think it was twenty ten for GQ. And it's so 2011. I have the link. 2011. Open. Thank you for correcting me there. And he was he was making Transformers Dark of the Moon, which is uh the third film. And the second film is really not good. It's called Revenge of the Fallen. 
And he was like, and, and that movie was made sort of during the writer's strike. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, mm. it's a little... That, even, was, that mm. was the problem. Well, even by Michael Bay standards, it was very, very hard to understand. Three is pretty good. It's a, it was a bit of a comeback. Four and five... Isn't three about like the JFK assassination? It, like Optimus Prime does it? It, it is. Um, Optimus Prime is not responsible for the death of JFK, but um, there is a lot of space race information in the film. Gotcha. It's just like the Irishman. <laughs> they have a relationship. Yeah. They're both about labor. Um, <laughs> and anyway, he gets trapped in this Transformers story. He emerges to make a movie called 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. You and I saw together in a movie theater right after Christmas in Glendale. Um, I wouldn't say it was one of the best viewing experiences of my life. I love to spend time with you, Chris. I yeah. love to see movies with you, especially movies that we view as dumb shit entertainments that we want to apply serious meaning to. Yeah. I would say that that one let me down. He followed it up with another Transformers movie. It felt like Michael Bay was in the wilderness. Lo and behold, Netflix comes along and they tell us, we'd like to give Michael Bay all the money to do whatever he wants to do. And he he did it. He did it. He brought us six underground. Why are you playing this so like calm and close to the like? Just go ahead. We're not talking out. about six underground yet. I'm just okay. setting the stage. Okay. But yeah. Michael Bay being back is something that you were just like literally screaming at the top of <laughs> your lungs. Is back. On Bay is Boulevard back. Last night. Yeah, we saw the film together. We're going to get to the film in a minute. I just want to say I'm just delighted. I was delighted by his return. I'm delighted that it's Netflix who's bringing him back. And there's a very big reason for that, which we'll get into. And it felt like for years, and who could have known if you ever watch a movie like The Rock that this man had shackles on him, but he had shackles on him. Six Underground makes The Rock look like Marriage Story. (laughs) (laughs) All of the action in The Rock could be squeezed into the first 17 minutes of Six Underground. Absolutely. So before we go any further and get into the depths of Six Underground, I'm going to um, outline some film theory for you guys. Okay. Are you ready? This is great. Yeah, This go is ahead. amazing shit. Go yeah, ahead. just can I do the backstory on this? Sure. Which is that um, Sean and I prepared this podcast outline together, and, and Sean did part of it, and I kind of filled the rest in, and I came back about 20 minutes before this recording just to refresh on what was in the po- And Sean had ad- added this entire paragraph called vulgar auteurism. So go ahead, Sean. I'm so excited to define vulgar auteurism for listeners of The Big Picture. Here is what it is. Coined by the critic Andrew Tracy and lovingly adopted by critics like Ignati Vishnevetsky, who defines vulgar auteurism who defines vulgar auteurism as enthusiasm for directors who work in genre filmmaking, mainly action, but also figures like the Farrelly brothers. It applies essentially the exact same auteur theory developed by the French critics mm-hmm. in Cahiers du Cinema in the 50s, which extended authorship to genre filmmakers like Hitchcock or Howard Hawks, but broadens what we might deem big or small budget trash. Michael Bay, to me, is the absolute lord of the vulgar auteurs. He is the the megalodon. He is the king. Now, there are other people who have been involved in this conversation. I think, Chris, a lot of your favorite filmmakers could be incorporated into this. Tony Scott. For sure. Michael Mann, to some degree, even though he is a very sort of respectable type. yeah. Yeah. Um, Neville Dean Taylor was a big one when this was first developed, and their career has kind of gone sideways. Somebody like John M. Chu, who was making movies like G.I. Joe movies at the time and now has a completely different career because of Chris John Wu would be a good example of this. Certainly. Yeah. Um, De Palma in some ways is. Absolutely. There is also a kind of straight-to-VOD kind of action filmmaker, guys like John Hyams, who made like a lot of Universal Soldier movies in the late 2000s, early aughts. This term has kind of vanished. It was, v- it was very big on film internet. Even before film Twitter, film internet was very into vulgar auteurism. 
Bay is perfect for it for me because he has a very clear idea of what he's interested in. And he is the author of his movies, even if he doesn't write any of the scripts. And I don't think he's ever written a script in his life. I don't even know if he has, knows how to write. I, yeah. I don't either. Um, or read, for that matter. <laughs> but what he knows how to do is explore the human heart. Yeah. And he does that by making things go very fast, making them go very loud. And then they and, fucking yeah. explode. And then blowing shit up. Yeah. That is, that is what he does. Yeah. And it sounds dumb, and it is dumb. And sometimes it's okay to be dumb. Amanda, you have things that you like it's, that you know are dumb. Yeah, of course. It's I, I think dumb is unfair. Okay. Because I think he's sort of a savant. It's ridiculous in like the actual, I cannot believe that I'm watching this. And I go to the movies to see things that I cannot see anywhere else and that maybe don't even exist. Um, and that is what he excels at. And then you just blow all of that shit up. But it is, it is operatic, giant scale. So I don't think, I think it requires skill. It's not dumb. It definitely requires skill. It's it is a kind of it's a kind of management in a high stakes way that I think we kind of overlook because Bay's reputation is as this dictatorial, you know, guy rolling around on a giant crane, barking orders at people, screaming, telling into, Shia LaBeouf to get closer to the explosion. Yes, yeah. And and when I was reporting that story about him almost ten years ago, a lot of people were like, "This is a this is a tough motherfucker. He can be really mean on set." He's got a really clear vision of what he wants, and he is not going to pat you on the back at the end of the day. He has a militaristic approach, and you can understand that when you look at his movies, which are very adoring of the the U.S. military and Mm -hmm. military power. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a bit of a fascist in that way, and so it's hard to celebrate somebody like this. Not just in that way, but yes. We'll explore the themes of Six Underground as well. Um, So I don't want to confuse the emotional, ideological bent of Michael Bay with what he's able to do as a filmmaker. And that is the thing that I'm interested in talking about, most especially. Though I guess we can also talk about some of the flaws sure. of of the thinking behind his movies. <laughs> um, what else to say about the vulgar auteurs and, and what Michael Bay does before we dive into this movie? Yeah, I think that, you know, we uh, often ascribe a certain uh, genius to somebody like Spielberg because he has an understanding of how camera movement and cutting and lighting get it uh, like a deep part of your brain that just reacts to those things, like on a very sensory, visceral level. And he understands that and then turns it past 11 on the dial to be like, what if I could make your heart explode? What if I could break your eardrums? What if I make your eyeballs pop out of your head? There is not a single shot in Michael Bay's entire filmography that isn't essentially sexualizing and aesthetizing like any single thing he points his camera at, he's incapable of not viewing it as an object of desire and uh, consumption and power and and eroticism. Whether it's a fucking robot or it's a Ferrari or a woman or a man, you know, like, because that happens in 13 hours, too. It's just beefcakes for two hours and then Benghazi pops off. Yes, it's John Krasinski dripping wet yeah. with an additional 40 pounds of muscle <laughs> on top of Jim Halpert. And it is, it all of it is sexualized. You're right. A bottle of Coke, sexualized. Yeah. A missile, sexualized. It is, he is the phallic god come to explain human desire and impulse in these really stupid action movies. And that feels like applying something deeper than it actually is onto the movie. But I think if you psychoanalyzed Michael Bay, he would get to that place. He would he would understand that that is what drives him in a lot of ways. Yeah, but it's all just kind of impulse-driven. And I don't know that he would sit there and be like, I, you know, shot this missile or this Coke bottle in this way because it 
it has this shape and also I'm trying to express this, but he does a his films are about that just in deep inherent uh desire and uh, like unexamined like expression of of ourselves. Yeah. And like and mostly men, but there's something they, they're like quote traditionally masculine movies, but there's something that's so obvious about them and so like un unfiltered that doesn't make them as offensive to me. I guess maybe they're I'm just so used cheesy. to it. Yeah, they're cheesy and it just kind of like is what it is. I don't think you're really like wading below the surfaces trying to understand what this means for a generation of like women. Who, yeah, who gives a shit? It's just it's it's on its face in a way. And I think that that's true both of for every part of his filmmaking. It just like is what it is at a maximalist level. Yeah, there's no he wouldn't even know how to virtue signal. Like I he, he is completely disconnected. He's been a, an extremely wealthy and successful person for many years. He's kind of checked out on the idea of even like symbolism, mm-hmm. you know, like he is just doing what he thinks is cool and in it in its way that is the symbol. Mm-hmm. That is the symbol for a kind of certain masculine impulse. I think that his movies worked best when they were very easy to explain. Yeah. There's a giant meteor and the only people that can stop it from destroying Earth are a bunch of oil rig workers in Texas. A disgruntled general has taken over Alcatraz and is threatening San Francisco with nuclear warheads. Yeah. Very clear explanation. Two badass cops in Miami are going to wreck shit. Those are his best movies. The Transformers movies don't work that well because there's this arcane mythology about something that doesn't matter. And also there's way too much CGI. And he, in many respects, is like a practical filmmaker. And I think the stuff that works best, even in Six Underground, is the stuff that it's like, even if it isn't real, even if it is animated, it feels real mm-hmm. or close to real. Mm-hmm. The stuff that is science fiction, I, I just don't, I don't get. Yeah, you can tell that at the heart of Transformers in like whenever Steven Spielberg was like, yeah, I'll put my name on this, was like a boy and his robot. And they wanted to make this kind of like heartfelt E.T. Amblin Entertainment version, and he was like, fuck that. I am throwing 80 robots and crashing into a highway and having, like, a foot race with Decepticons through Miami. I mean, it's just, like, that's so far removed from what, like, the kernel of the idea of that movie was. The fact that he made five of them is kind of a hilarious mistake at this point now when you look back on it. Yeah, we missed out on a lot of interesting movies. And this move, Six Underground, makes me long for what we could have gotten from 2009 through 2018 from him. You know, he did make Pain and Gain, which we didn't mention. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of an interesting movie that I think is not totally successful. It's kind of his closest stab at a comedy, um, a kind of bodybuilder's action comedy. Yeah. Which I think was a victim of a few things. One, it's not great. Two, it was weirdly marketed. Three, the timing on it just was not ideal. Um, I just, it, it's a movie starring The Rock and Mark Wahlberg. I think it also was bad because it tried to exist within reality. For the most part, even though it was shot in Miami and was about bodybuilders and had cocaine and fights and all this stuff, it essentially tried to live within the laws of physics. Michael Bay should not be adherent to the laws of physics, ever. I agree. When he was finishing up Transformers Dark of the Moon and we spoke, he, I was like, what are you doing next? And he was like, I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is it's my 70s movie. Mm-hmm. It's like my character-driven uh, little indie so movie. so funny that he thinks that. <laughs> and, you know, the movie costs like $50 million and it's about bodybuilders who rob banks. Um, I think he's a really interesting guy and I'm very interested to see how Six Underground is received. What to you guys jumped out while watching it specifically that you were like, this either impressed me or it scared me or I felt compelled to talk about it. I think 
even for Michael Bay, the so muchness of it, I, we all walked down and we're like, was there a single note given on this entire movie? Was there a single budgetary limit? Is this literally, I think it's the closest that I've ever felt to just like seeing what Michael Bay's brain is like without any sort of like intermediary. Unfiltered. Yeah. And that was... um quite literally awe-inspiring and, <laughs> and, 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 and frightening. And, and it, but it, it's, it's remarkable also that he just gets to do this in 2019 because there is, I don't know, there's an explosion or something insane every five seconds, like every five seconds. I'm going to briefly describe the plot of this movie. Hopefully it adheres closely to the short descriptions I gave to his other movies. So after faking their own deaths, six individuals form a vigilante squad in order to take down notorious criminals. All of them were brought to the team by its leader, played by Ryan Reynolds, for their unique skills and a desire to erase their past and change the future. Mm-hmm. So it's what? One part Ocean's Eleven, one part The Dirty Dozen. I I do think it's worth mentioning, and we can get more into this, it's also incredibly autobiographical because it is about a billionaire who's tired of taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a billionaire who's like, there's just nothing but red tape in the government if you try to go through, like, phil- philanthropy or anything. So what I decided to do was put together my own SEAL Team 6 and take out warlords and dictators that I designate as evil. Yes, <laughs> it is... Um... I don't think we can overhype this. Like, I watched this movie. I felt purified. I also felt (laughs) filthy. I was baptized in the waters of cinema. This is one of the most exciting two hours I've spent in a movie theater a really long time. And I came out feeling like I had a film of fucking slime all over me because it is completely morally bankrupt in a way that is almost hysterical. It It is almost hilarious. Absolutely. I think what I said to you guys afterwards is this is Mike Bloomberg's favorite movie of all time because it really just valorizes the idea that someone could do this. it's like Dan Bilzerian's favorite movie of all time. Yes. It's someone who has a more grotesque taste in the world. And the Ryan Reynolds character is super interesting because he's played by Ryan Reynolds who just does not strike you as the kind of guy who's like, what I need to do is Make everyone think I killed myself in a in a Red Bull stunt plane. Mm-hmm. Shout out Red Bull. Shout out Red Bull. No and free ads. There's an extraordinary <laughs> amount of SpawnCon in this movie as well, which we can talk about. Um, and then recruit other people who are somehow highly skilled, but also capable of great illegality and make them work for me. But I also will not have any meaningful relationship with them. At all. Yeah. In right. fact, I will encourage them to not share anything about themselves to 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 anyone in the world. Which, um, how would you guys feel if if someone came to you and asked you to do that? Am I already dead? Like I'm, de- I I quote unquote died. Yeah, sure. I'd be into it. Yeah. Well, you can't have quote unquote died because he stages well, the deaths for you. So, right. like, I mean, you have to have been. You must be. You are on the run. You know, yeah. If, if like, I found myself in the position of some of the characters in this movie, I think I'd be down to do, to get a second lease on on the afterlife. Can I ask you guys something? Because I did go to the bathroom at one point. Maybe I missed it, though. Probably not. Was compensation discussed at any point? For I the think six that it's like money is no object. Because like I'm sure at any given point, it's just like he's straight cryptoing and he's bitcoining and he's like like maybe skimming a little off the top. <laughs> if you're saying to me, come with me. Quit your former life, stage a funeral, don't ever use your real name or identity again, and work for me to target, you know, 
the most dangerous people on earth and I'll pay you in Bitcoin? Well, the answer is no. One of the things that they actually, but this is like this crazy libertarian movie. One of the things that they talk about is like one of the advantages of being a supposed dead spooks is that they don't have to pay taxes anymore. <laughs> They're like, true? yeah, dude, it's sick. <laughs> yeah, my mom cried at my funeral, but I don't have to pay income tax anymore. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, that's like a scene in this movie. It it's like the yeah. quietest scene is people being like, "Man, it's awesome not having to pay taxes." So, the Ryan Reynolds character has gotten wealthy because he is a master of magnet technology. Literally, he has designed technology with magnets that has revolutionized our our society. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, is is that's metaphorical writing. He is a person who is drawing other people to him with his his ingenuity, his wit, and his cash. Yeah. The problem is, is that you don't sense that there's any connectivity amongst these people at all, and and we can we can run down the the sixum if you'd like. I think um, Amanda has a helpful category here later in the show that identifies why any of these other people are in this movie, <laughs> yeah, because it's very confounding. Um, I guess I probably would do it. I would probably I would the probably thing, accept the job. It's worth I wouldn't t- accept the job though if if the the home base was an abandoned airplane hangar in the right. desert in the desert. Yeah. Which seems like not a chill place to hang out. Also, I just want to say in terms of like real like Nicks-esque drafting by Ryan Reynolds, like I I when they were announcing like what each person does, which is a classic like, you know, team up dirty dozen kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, "Oh, it's the explosives expert. It's the it's the they have a guy who's really good at parkour." Yeah. A Colombian cartel hitman, Melanie Laurent, who just honestly is the fucking Terminator in this movie, yeah. and we'll probably spend an hour talking about her. Dave Franco is the driver. They have a doctor, mm-hmm. which is kind of like limited because how much could she possibly do before they have to take somebody to a hospital anyway? A lot in the first 17 minutes of this movie, which yeah. we can discuss, but anyway. And then they have John Boyega, who or not John Boyega? They have uh, Corey Hawkins. Corey Hawkins, who is brought in from the Deltas, so he is an actual soldier. But otherwise, not exactly like blue trip first round draft picks. It's just a confounding collection of people. You know, when you watch a movie like The Dirty Dozen, you're like, oh, I, I actually recognize all of those people as significant character actors of their time. Ryan Reynolds, Mel- Melanie Laurent, okay, I get it. I get what Bay is doing with Melanie Laurent. No one loves a striking blonde more than Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. Dave Franco, comic relief, that's, that's a must for him. He always has to have the yeah. wise-cracking guy, Buscemi in, in Armageddon. You know, this is, he, he always has that. Adria Arjona is not an actress I'm familiar with, but she also feels the kind of like, she's kind of like um, when Denise Richards was the nuclear physicist in the Bond movie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, incredibly beautiful, striking, supermodel-esque woman who is also a genius doctor who also does not get a backstory in this right. movie. Mm-hmm. Ben Hardy, who is a man who I guess is famous. <laughs> he was, is that the parkour guy? Yeah, that's so the parkour he was guy. A, he was in Bohemian Rhapsody. That's I learned what this I last time. Okay. Yeah. Does he do parkour in Bohemian Rhapsody? No, unfortunately. Maybe that would have made it a better movie. When we were watching this movie, I think we all thought Ben Hardy was just a professional parkour dude. I thought it was Billy Magnuson, with all respect to Billy Magnuson. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, if you want to know the two major influences on Six Underground, it's... Black Hawk Down mm-hmm. and GoPro YouTube videos of like adventure tourism in Croatia of guys who were like, check out how I ran across this roof in Belgrade, bro. And it's like, and then the cops came, but we were already laughing. Deuces. That's like literally a quarter of the influence on this film. 
Let's talk a little bit more about the style. Yeah. So <laughs> the editing in the movie is a little bit different for, for Michael Bay movies. He is a fast-cutting, intense action filmmaker. But the first 17 minutes of this movie, which is one long chase scene throughout Florence, Florence Italy, mm-hmm. is as up close. Seizure-inducing. And as fast moving as anything he's ever made. I, and, and by proxy, maybe anyone's ever made. Um, did it make you sick, Chris? I was like, if this whole movie is like this, this is going to be intense. Like, I'm going to barf. I feel like you don't love this kind of filmmaking, Amanda. Like, I feel like you admire, like, a great set piece, but this is a different kind of thing. Two key things here. Number one, Florence. <laughs> Michael Bay and I both appreciate a fine European city. It's not a capital. I know my capitals. Number two, filmed outside. Thank you so much. Daylight. Yeah. You love to see it. They're like bright colored cars. He's driving a lime green sports car. Yeah. Dave Franco's character. And he drives through what seems like Every 17 museum. plazas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't, does Florence have that many plazas? That many? Yeah, it's Italy. Okay. That's, it's like basically so what they accurate. do. They have plazas and they have that really big church, the Duomo. Okay. I really enjoyed it when he's like, I'm on the Duomo. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every, we know. <laughs> and then and then they have museums, which is the end of this car chase. Or it's not really the end. It keeps going. But like maybe the, the climax of the second act. <laughs> of the car of chase. The, of the car chase of the first 17 minutes of this film is them going through the Uffizi, which is like the famous museum in Florence where like the David is and it's the soundtrack switches from some like anonymous Lumineers nonsense <laughs> to uh, like dubstep Carmina Burana. Yeah. <laughs> I was jacked. This is great. Yeah. The music in the movie is notable. It is either dubstep remixes of opera or circa 2002 ripcord guitar music. Yeah. Which neither of which is contemporary at all. Can I also just mention um, a quick note? It's just that we have no idea what's going on in the first 17 oh, yeah. minutes of this movie. Like, it's unclear as to why they're running, who they're running from. And that's not because he's playing, like, hide the pinata with it. It's like he's actually just like, fuck it. I'm not telling you why we're in a car chase. It's incredibly confounding. He keeps putting title cards on the screen, numbers on the screen. We learn that the characters are identified by their numbers one, two, three, four, five, six, but also. The, the the time shifting is very strange. It's almost Lindelof-esque, the way that he's bouncing back yeah, he's into like, the past. Four years ago, six months ago, <laughs> 17 minutes ago. And every the tw- present. 26 minutes or so, Ryan Reynolds comes up over some voiceover and says, <laughs> what would happen if you were a ghost? I know. Like, Here's what I did. Watch one thirty for 30, bro. <laughs> what if I told you but he, he wouldn't pay taxes? <laughs> there's a kind of repetition in the movie that for some filmmak- filmmakers would be a signature. It would be a stylistic choice to beat you over the head with something. You know, in, in Hitchcock films, you see these patterns and you can identify them all throughout his movies and you say like, oh, there's so much intentionality going on here. I genuinely just think that they were confused when they were making this movie yeah. and they keep saying the same thing over and over again because there's a feeling like, don't look down at your phone. Like, stay with us. Yeah. Make sure you're still in this movie with us, which is a, kind of a new form of, movie making like that that adrenalized there are very few master shots where you're like oh the three people have walked into a room and now i understand where they are in space it's like i'm like what i don't even know what country we're in most of the time to say nothing of like how a guy gets from the top of a skyscraper to the ground floor without any explanation right it's it's like it's almost like completely uninterested in most conventional visual storytelling gimmicks 
I do feel like we've noticed with the Netflix movies and not even these big budget Netflix movies, but like the rom-coms are at a much faster pace and they really are changing what's on the screen every five seconds because I do think they know that your eye will wander unless you're like really locked in. But this feels like the ultimate version of we're just going to make you stare at the screen because something totally bizarre and unexpected is going to happen Honestly, like, I I know I say every five seconds is kind of like a figure of speech, but literally every five to ten seconds. And it all ramps up to every time they move to a new city, there's a new major set piece. And so there's a new major moment where whether it's one guy running down, is it the Afizi? Is that the you Duomo. The, the, he du- runs the down Duomo. the Duomo, yeah. Okay, running down the Duomo, that is one. And then there is another one later where um, they're in a hotel in Japan. Is it in Tokyo? Uh the high, Hong Kong? In Hong Kong. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And the, the Nihai, yeah. there's a major moment there. So you have to stay on board. And then there's one later in a country called Turkestan mm. on a yacht. And oh, you got to yeah. stick around there for it's that big It's probably like the top top five Turkestan movie. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> what else is on the list? <laughs> no? Um, it's, 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 it's promising payoff in, in, in fast relief. You know, you, there's always this expectation that you can't turn away, which... I feel like a lot of commercials work this way. I feel like a lot of editing in when you're watching live sports works this yeah. way. You know, the the inability to let you break your concentration from the, the sporting event. Movies are not this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but this does feel like a functional, uh, a functional choice given that it's Netflix. Well, I think Amanda's point about it being in the daylight and using a lot of like real cities that people recognize or it differentiates this uh, from something like say like a very a, another really good action movie like John Wick mm-hmm. where i i really love the John Wick movies the John Wick movies make a lot more sense than 6 Underground but 6 Underground kind of shits on the John Wick movies because like you're just like these this seems like it's happening in Hong Kong this seems like it's happening in Florence this seems like shit is exploding in a major metropolitan european city and the you know the the sort of gunfu style that that Sahelski and Leach kind of revolutionized with John Wick, which is influenced by those John Woo movies that you're talking about. And, and the raid and stuff like that. Yes, yeah. Is very balletic and very choreographed and very specific. And it's fast, but it's all purposeful. This is a different kind of movie making. Like it's it's way more frenetic and like the the shots actually don't match. You know, we were talking after we saw the movie, that opening chase scene where you know the this this lime green sports car is racing and it's sort of sliding against other cars and getting scraped and then the next cut there are no scrapes on the car because there's just too many shots there's too much going on there's too much noise there's no way to make the movie cut together to make a logical sense so if you watch movies and you're like this has to be perfect there can be no mistakes and you Chris you pointed out in one of the Transformers movies notoriously there's a scene where one of the female characters is running and in oh, one yeah. shot, she's yeah. running and she's wearing high heels. Mm-hmm. And in the next shot, she has no shoes on. And then in the next shot, she has her high heels on again. Those mistakes happen in these movies and you have to accept them. Yeah. If you don't accept them as part of the, the insanity of the process, then it's, you're going you're gonna to have a harder time with the movie. But they matter less in this because there's so much going on that it kind of washes over you. Oh, I yeah. do think in, I kind of tuned out in one of the set pieces. I, it was late. I was a little hungry and I was like trying to think about. And then I tuned back in and I was like, okay, so people are fighting again and you don't actually... Because there's a lack of coherence in a lot of different ways, you just kind of are on board with it, and and you can, which which I think will work well for Netflix because people will like look and be engaged when they're looking at it. And if you miss something, 
It's okay. Also, I mean, just think of the number of screen grabs of all the mistakes that will instantly be memed that people will have a great time with. Oh, it's a great point. I hadn't yeah. thought of that, but we'll be able to instantaneously yeah, but it's be like, able to capture yeah. that. It's like Easter eggs. We could also do the, like, we can make juxtaposed memes where we're doing, like, the Scarlett Johansson-Adam Driver fight, <laughs> but then it's actually, like, a cutaway to Melanie Laurent, and then Adam Driver punches yeah. the wall. I can't wait for the Melanie we're, Laurent We're memes. getting to Melanie. Okay. Uh, a couple of more things that make this a unique Michael Bay experience. This movie is very gross. Yeah, I didn't like this part of it. Um... Michael Bay movies are amazingly violent. They're, they are fascistically violent and, and kind of insane and immoral. But this movie, um, there's more blood splatter. There's more viscera than in any of his movies. I, I can't totally figure out why. I, it wasn't nauseating. It felt more like Sam Raimi to me. It felt like pop art, like yeah. gore rather than like extreme headshot violence. Although early in the movie, there is a lot of like first person shooter stuff which clearly he just like abandoned midway through the movie but like in the beginning I was like oh man is this gonna be like his video game movie some weird fucking video game thing that's supposed to because and it was really strange because we walked out of the movie theater and for some reason there was a video game uh, live event happening in the lobby of the movie theater and I was just like holy crap, like, there's just a dude drinking a big gulp playing, like, a first-person shooter. And I was like, you should have been in that movie, man. You would have loved it. Uh, but, yeah, he abandons that kind of perspective. I thought that uh, a lot of the stuff in Italy and, and throughout the movie was just, like, how can I, like, push this to the maximal level? There's so much CGI in this movie, too. There is. There's one scene in particular where um, building materials fall from a building during a chase sequence, that is the m- most, I thought was one of the most genius ideas for an action mm-hmm. sequence, but was so held back by the fact that it was so CGI. Yeah, there's no way you could do that without multiple people dying. Yeah, there's steel beams falling yeah. from like a 70-floor building and landing on cop right. cars. There's no way to actually make that movie. You know, the one thing, I, the one point I wanted to make about him before we go any further is he's never going to get credit for this because people are like, this guy's a gross idiot and they don't want to give him credit. But he was ahead of not just the comic book franchise revolution, but also a very particular kind of action movie making that much more quote-unquote respectable filmmakers like Christopher Nolan adopted and then stripped down. And the famous sequence where the truck flips over in the Dark Knight is a, is a riff on a, on a Bay convention. Mm-hmm. And when, we, we, when you see them sparingly in these sort of more prestigious executions of these movies, they feel more special. Mm-hmm. And Bay's execution is like the opposite of that. He's like, I don't need one flipping truck. I need 75 flipping trucks in the next five minutes. And he literally gives it to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are, in the chase sequence, how many cars flip over in the first 17 minutes of the movie? It's got to be north of 20. Yeah, and when that happens, you're like, man, like one of the things that I found myself really like wondering throughout the film is like, well, I just like, it's kind of like putting Flight of the Valkyries in the middle of the movie. Like, how are you going to top that? There's no way you can top that. And then I was like, oh, yeah, you're just going to add F-16s. You know, like, you're just going to add fighter jets and magnets and all this other shit. And it just, like, completely keeps one up, upping itself. I want to talk a little bit more about the cast. Okay. I'm a fan of Ryan Reynolds. I feel slightly ashamed to say out loud that I'm a fan of Ryan Reynolds. It's not cool like Ryan Reynolds. He is a very smarmy, highly successful um, agent of of franchise Hollywood. And I think that's, there's a lot held against him in that respect. He's also a very handsome guy, married to a very beautiful actress. They seem to have a, a quote-unquote perfect life. Um, I, I find him amusing. Mm-hmm. I think this is like the best possible execution for his amusingness. Um, it occurred to me when I was watching it exactly what his persona is, which it, uh, for whatever reason I never never thought of before, but it is so clearly guy who looks like Robert Redford 
with Chevy Chase's personality. And that seems almost unfair that somebody who got to look like that got to just steal that persona. I, I would I would look at Joel McHale and be like, oh, Joel McHale is trying to do like, what if Chevy Chase but hot? Mm-hmm. But this is actually on a whole other level. And this character, which should be so self-serious and absurd, this billionaire who's a, a, a genius inventor, who's got all this money and all this um, emotional weight behind his do-gooding, mm-hmm. probably shouldn't be like, Detective Pikachu, but but, <laughs> but but he is he's basically just doing Detective Pikachu yeah. in the movie, and I enjoyed it. Do, yeah. you, do you guys care about Ryan Reynolds at all? I don't think I'm offended by him. I mean, I just am not going to go on the Deadpool thing, but that's more a, a genre of pop culture and fandom that I'm not interested in. I, you know, Ryan Reynolds can do what he wants. I. I think it's a little unfair to Robert Redford. We don't have to like get okay. we don't have to get into this hot actor wars <laughs> right now, but let me just go ahead and say that there's a difference aesthetically between Robert Redford and Ryan Reynolds. Who's, it's really the only thing I want to do. Who's a better comp on this podcast? Uh, Harrison Ford? I guess so, but even— he's trying to do the Indiana Jones thing, right? Like, where it's like, I'm laughing yeah, as he, I'm— the thing about Ryan Reynolds, which is in keeping with everything you just described of him, he he looks a little Kendall. He is mm-hmm. very— plasticky is unfair but just generically handsome in a sort of unmemorable way and so that fits and you can plug him into any franchise and have him like wisecrack and he looks great in a suit and he looks great in the suits and this and he looks great in he was wearing some bond khakis and that Mm -hmm. was nice for him as well so it's not ryan reynolds very handsome I just, the best. Yeah, I just was <laughs> mad about the Robert Redford thing. I think he's good in this movie. I laughed at some of the things. He is in a different movie than the team that he has assembled. For sure. Who are in a different movie than the villains that they are fighting. <laughs> who are in a different movie than uh, everything that's he happening He might even be in a them. different movie than the Ryan Reynolds who does the voiceover throughout the movie. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So there's that. I mean, we definitely just skipped over the part how this movie makes absolutely no sense, like, at all, even for a Michael Bay movie. Well, I'll just say the reason that— Can I just say one more thing about Ryan Reynolds? Yeah, of course. I think if the last 10 to 12 years have taught us anything, it's that it's easier to teach funny people to do action than it is to teach action people to do funny. So Downey Jr., Chris Pratt, Ryan Reynolds, all funny guys in their own way. And it's just like, just put them on keto, you know? Yeah, and I, I think that Is we Is it keto or keto? I actually don't know. Bobby, can you weigh in on this? I believe it's keto. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Bobby. Uh, <laughs> glad to be of assistance. <laughs> the only person who would have ever possibly attempted keto that I know uh, is Bobby. This movie was written by Paul Wernick and Rhett Reese, and you mentioned Deadpool. They obviously are the scribes behind Deadpool. And I, my impression of the movie is it doesn't matter if the movie makes sense. Yeah. And all it matters is, is that what Chris is saying, that a funny guy gets to do an action movie. and. You know, it's not that the it's not that the concept is incoherent. It's just it's it, it's just libertarian, as you say, Chris. But I feel like the whole point of those guys working on this movie is so that they could be on set with Ryan Reynolds and just feed him jokes. Yeah, and he's good at delivering their jokes. Now you may not like Deadpool, but he's just doing. Yeah, if no, Deadpool was Bruce Wayne, you know that's kind of what the bit is. And I don't know. I enjoyed it. I, I'm I'm not above it. That's all I, that's all I can We're really done? Say. We're not talking about it anymore? Well, what, you, what, enjoy- what else should we say about Ryan Reynolds? Oh. Uh, He's like arguably the most important actor in Hollywood. <laughs> sure. I, I mean, he, he like transcends a lot of the stuff that we say you can't do anymore. 
Important is a strong word. Successful, possibly. A lot of movies that wouldn't have worked without him hinge on him. You know, like, the Deadpool thing should not work, and it does consistently He's also work. a really interesting example of a guy who's clearly betting on himself. You know, like, there's some, there some ways of doing movie stardom and being an actor where you're just like, I'm just going to work with the best people. I'm just always going to try and work with, like, these really smart directors and really savvily put myself in a position to be recognized by my peers and the press and everything. And he obviously is just like, I think that I'm what sell these, sells these movies. I don't think that Tim Miller needs to make the second Deadpool movie. I don't think that, like, I will be cowed by Michael Bay's style. Like, I will get my personality across. I don't necessarily even... I wonder whether or not he was like, I should do a VO for Six Underground because otherwise there's not enough me. Like, I'm not saying he did do that, but there's so much Ryan Reynolds because of this voiceover. Like Sean mentioned, every 20 minutes he checks in and he has like a little three-page monologue that he does. Yeah, I I should say too, like, this is a fairly recent turn of events. Like... Ryan Reynolds actually was sort of notorious for being a huge failure, for being a Ken Doll-esque funny guy who couldn't make one movie that anyone liked. And it took Deadpool to change that. Now, he made a couple of small movies that I really like. I love Mississippi Grind. I think that's one of the all-time great gambling movies. And I think if he wanted to do what you're saying, if he wanted to, like, Jake Gyllenhaal it and say, like, actually, I was in Prince of Persia. That was a bad idea. What I should do is work with auteurs, find great scripts, only pursue that kind of work. He would have had an interesting career and not a lot of money. Instead, he was like, no. He's doing the Downey. He's, He's doing like, the Downey. Yeah. It's a, it's a much more modern version of Movie Star Pursuit. Deadpool and Detective Pikachu and Hobbs and Shaw earlier this summer and Six Underground is, these, these, are, these are very purposeful choices that are quote-unquote working. Now, how, whether or not this movie works is probably up for a different kind of definition. He's probably the single most seen actor? Yes. In 2019? These are branding activities. Even including all the MCU guys, which is quite something. And soon he will be in the MCU because Fox was purchased by Disney. So that's, you know, how long before we catch him in an Avengers movie? It feels inevitable. Um, Let's talk more about the rest of the cast. Melanie Laurent. um, I, wow. I'm like, I don't, Paul Bettany and Da Vinci Code, just like Opus daying myself in front of (laughs) Melanie Laurent. (laughs) In this movie. Um, what, what's she doing in this movie, you think? What was her thinking when she was like, I need to take this role? Was it like, I need to get a second house in the French Riviera? I or? think there is probably some financial incentive. And I think there's also just like, I'm a French person. And o- so, auteur theory, baby. Yeah, auteur theory. <laughs> and also, I don't care. Like these, you know, I would like to be in a silly American thing. So I think that this is fun for her. And if you're going to do it. Do this. Yeah. If you're going to like, if you're going to be in a candy colored, spray painted graffiti of immorality and debased military industrial complex propaganda, do fucking this one. You know, I liked what she did with it. I enjoyed her the whole time. You're underselling this. Well, I want people to watch the film. Okay. I want them to watch her. In white lingerie okay. on a bed. You're making it sound this like is, she's like ScarJo in like free <laughs> version of this podcast. Because I mean, I don't know. Um, no, she's I, she's she's fantastic. Her character makes no sense, and much like every other figure in the movie, to search for like meaning because there's no there's no Melanie Laurent career arc to examine. Like there is with Ryan Reynolds. It's like she's a great actor. Every five years, you, she's like gets to be in Inglorious Bastards or or Beginners or something where you're like, I just like her. I just want to be around her. This is the weirdest possible use for her, but there's no downside. There's just no downside. She looks great. She's wearing a tux. 
Yep. She just is like in the middle of a desert and by a sports car for some reason. I do feel like just if dealing out headshots yeah, to dudes. If you're gonna be if you wanna be an actor, like if you if that is an aspiration for you, I feel like deep down somewhere inside of you, you want to be leaning against a sports car like filmed by Michael Bay. Yeah. You want that level of objectification and also glorification. Decontextualized from any narrative. It's just like, oh, I get to have this piece of like ephemera with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. My children will see once mom stood in the middle of a desert while Lamborghinis like drove up to her. What about Dave Franco? Paycheck? I guess so. I, I feel like he's having what's, a real say yes to everything what's the year downside? or two years. I I think um he and Ryan Reynolds are a bit too much like two guys looking in a mirror. They don't have a lot of chemistry. I, I didn't movie. think so either. The, the timing was not on. Yeah, they're too too the same. They're driving seventy five miles per hour through. But they're Florence, not. Though. Oh yeah, that's a good point. They're sitting on a truck somewhere. They were trying to be in the realism of the moment. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, so he was okay. The one who uh, really struck me is is Payman Mahdi. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with Payman Mahdi, he is the star of many of Asghar Farhadi's films, the Iranian <laughs> filmmaker. Uh, <laughs> um, he also appeared in 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. He sure he's, did. He's, he's a, a wonderful actor. Um, you know, he's from Tehran. He's been in some American productions, but like he's best known for these very sophisticated, quiet stories of families being torn apart that Farhadi makes. Um, and halfway through this movie, he plays the brother of an evil dictator in this movie. I turned to uh, to to Zach, your husband, Amanda, and I was like, yo, Zach, that's the dude from a separation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's just an amazing thing. I, again, much like Melanie, much like Dave, certainly like Ryan Reynolds, I suspect the paycheck was nice. Yeah. He does perfectly fine work. I would say the arc of his character is a bit confusing. Yes. He is... Um, jet streamed into uh, uh, righteous leadership uh-huh. rather quickly. Yeah. How, do, how do I talk about that without spoiling it much more? He's just he's uh, vying for the presidency of Turkestan with his evil brother, and the six underground have chosen him. Did you think those guys were credible brothers? Those two, like visually, yeah. Uh, no, I didn't think that anything about Turkestan was well thought out. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well said. It's not ideal, including also, the name. Uh, yeah, I mean, it felt very throwbacky in that respect. Or softy. It was changing throughout the movie. That was one thing. They couldn't even get the... Consist- Turgistan or Turgistan? Yeah. I think it, Turgistan. I, it definitely, they were saying Turgistan at some point in the movie. They could have also said Turgistan. It's tough. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about what Netflix is doing right now. Mm-hmm. What a run for those guys. <laughs> That's literally what he wrote down in the document. Just Did so he really? Know. Yes, he wrote Netflix's run. This is the, this, when the are we title gonna, of this section. When do you want to talk about Skydance, though? We'll get there. Skydance is back. <laughs> Thanksgiving, The Irishman. Uh-huh. December 6th, Marriage Story. December 13th, Six Underground. The Two Popes, December 20th. Never in the history of major motion pictures... Mm-hmm has one studio released in four consecutive weekends films of this magnitude. Never. It's unprecedented. It seems dumb because you can go home and put it on your TV and it doesn't feel like a big deal. But truly, (laughs) RKO can fuck right off. Columbia, nothing. Louis Mayer, peace out. Rolling in his grave and then hitting next episode, please. Yes, truly weak. (laughs) 
I want to read a piece of information I found on Wikipedia that is almost okay, certainly dubious. Is this the Turkestan? Uh, it's not entry? about Turkestan. The film's production reportedly cost $150 million, the second most expensive film in the Netflix platform since... Bright. That's exactly right. Will Smith's Bright. That is a lie that this movie cost $150 million. How much do you think it cost? I honestly think it cost $300 million. I think it cost twice as much. I Unless all of it is I would VFX. absolutely believe that. Every shot is on location, even if the country is made up. Every shot is from a helicopter. The camera work is... It, it feels like there are 40 cameras on every And sequence. even if you stipulate that a lot of it is VFX, and they can do incredible things with computers, I hear. But, like, just the amount of chopper shots, like helicopter shots he does, you do understand that if he misses it the first time around, they have to turn a helicopter around. It takes a long time. And I have no idea what the production, like, based on some of the sociopolitical, geopolitical uh, storylines that they're touching on, it seems like this movie has been in, in the works for quite a while. But, like, the, the amount of time it must have taken just to shoot the most basic sequences where they're just like, fucking jet flies over, but the, there's a helicopter going over the jet, and then there's like nine dolly shots of a guy walking into an abandoned plane. And it's like, that would take, that's like all of Marriage Story. All the money that you would have used to make Marriage Story is in like one shot of this movie. I say fine. What else are you going to spend it on Netflix? Spend it on this. This is a, this is a, a monument to excess. And in many ways, what... Netflix has been doing as a as a corporation has been a monument to excess to to technocracy, and I'm I'm cool with it. I think all that is true. That Netflix does a lot, and this movie also does a lot. I do wonder what it's like watching it at home versus watching it yeah. where we were. Mm-hmm. We watched it together in a theater that was so loud. It was so loud. But that is part of the point. I also feel like um, not unlike the conversation around Irishman, which I was not a, a good Catholic in my watching. I watched it in two nights. But if you stop watching this, I don't know if it will make any sense. Like part of it is you have to kind of just do it for two hours and then not think about it too much. Yeah. But if you pick it up again after 45 minutes, you're going to be like, wait, what? Why are we in Afghanistan? I agree with this. I The idea that is it so incoherent that if you're watching at home, you're just like, I don't really understand what's going on? Because visually, it's like a piece of art, right? It's like fine art. You're yes. just kind of like, it's it's like going to a exhibit at MoMA and you're just like, I can't believe this is going on. But at home, you need something to keep you going from scene to scene. Yeah. And I do wonder whether like if the explosions kind of become numbing at a point and you're just like, I do not understand why they're doing this whether that's an ideal viewing experience for something. We should do, like, the viewing guide like they did for Irishmen. Yeah. Like, after 41 minutes, you can stop. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I just, it's not ideal for the Netflix experience. My advice to you is if you have a, you know, a, a big sound bar to make sure it's connected to your television, put it on the biggest television you have. Treat it like you would treat Apocalypse Now. Not because Apocalypse Now is is the same piece of art to yeah. Six Underground. Six Underground has a long way to go before it can get both to the Both movies are about now. some guys. They're about dudes on a mission. Yeah. Um, they're both about dudes on a mission and and and, and Melanie Laurent. But, and also, you know, the extended cut of Apocalypse Now is what happens when the French travel to Asia and, and, try and make bad choices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they have something else in common. <laughs> okay. 
But you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you can't watch it on your phone. You can't watch it on your your iPad. You can't watch it on your laptop. I'm not saying that to scold people who watch things that way. I think for the in general, people can watch whatever they want, whenever they want. I don't really care. But it it doesn't. If you want to invest in this movie, it doesn't make sense to try to do it on on an iPad. Can I just say that you have been a lot more stringent about how people can watch Six Underground than you are about The Irishman. That's you true. just are I, that's and that's you and we're proud of you and are proud to share this airspace with You're you. The, but the I just podcaster. I just want to note that that is a true thing that happens. I just really any movie experience where I want to turn to my friends and be like, "Can you believe this shit?" Yeah, that's a good that's movie true. to me. It doesn't make it a a, a useful piece of art, but mm-hmm. it's a good movie. I just want to be I just want to be tantalized. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. What can how in the world are they going to measure success for this? I, I like, even if there are like 80 million people watch this in its first week, like there, it, it, it doesn't seem like the kind of movie that actually will get them new subscribers. Or am I wrong about so that? I, I, it's a good question. I've given this some thought. I do think it does one thing, which is that Netflix's brand is not very male and it has become more male with movies like The Irishman. And, you know, there are some TV shows that I think fit the bill there but for the most part it's it's kind of gender neutral i would say i wouldn't say it's like overtly feminine in any in any way it's not like lifetime where they're targeting an audience but the kind of content that they have is friendly for families it's friendly for people increasingly who like episodic television and sort of reality slash competition television and it's very sort of like documentary immersive friendly where people just want to like put something on and learn stuff for six hours it doesn't have that muscular, masculine ideal that that Bay pursues. And that's not really like a very invoke thing at all, but it is still a thing that drives a lot of business and entertainment. You know, the, we've kind of shifted to like MCU and nerd culture taking over this sort of thing. But there is still an appetite, I think, for movies like this. And frankly, even more so if people don't have to go to the movie theater for it. I think they're actually excited about the idea of getting a, a kind of a kick-ass action movie at home especially if they're rich guys who've got 70-inch screens in their, in their house. I think all of that is true. The counter-argument is that I think outside of this podcast, Six Underground will probably not be reviewed super well. No. 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 And I just <gasps> am curious. Just, I, you know, I don't want to go out on a limb, yeah. but I don't think everyone has as this a, movie's incoherent. elastic yeah. a mind as it's John does. It's morally bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. didn't even really talk about that yeah. because it, this is apparently, we turned this into a spoiler-free podcast like 30 minutes into it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But uh, yeah, we are aware of that plot line and we're available to discuss it at a later time. Anyway, if this movie isn't reviewed well and the the poster, as we were all noting before the screening started, is is like a joke. It's like a, it's like a child with Microsoft Paint to yeah. it. <laughs> and and this movie just doesn't seem at all serious. Like, will is it going to be the kind of thing that people are like, oh, yeah, It looks yeah, like I'll a Melissa Netflix. McCarthy movie on the yeah, poster. it does. Um, so what what is a win then? What do you guys think is, is I mean, considered success? I don't know. If 80 million people watch this on Netflix and they sign up however many... Subs- I mean, I guess subscribe new subscribers <laughs> is the thing that's a win for them. But do they release that information? I don't and- even think there's a lot of awareness of this movie. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm doing more advocacy than most movies that we there's, talk about on this show. There's next to none. I mean, I think that literally there is like a cohort at our company of people who are like, I can't wait. Bring me the six. And then I don't think anyone knows this is happening. 
But I, I don't know if that matters because they're just going to slot it into the homepage on Netflix and uh, things will just start exploding as soon as you open the Netflix app mm-hmm. for a large number of people. And, you know, most people aren't like us with their little like nerdy cal- release calendars. They just open up the thing and are like, what can And they're I watch? all going to be home for Christmas and they're all going to be bored and they're all going to be like, what should I watch? Or they can download it and watch it on their you flights home. Maybe that's why. Shout out to my husband who we walked out of this movie and he's like, there weren't as many boobs as I would have thought for Michael Bay without any restrictions. But maybe it's because they want people to watch it with their families. And as soon as you see the, <laughs> I don't know, just it's my thought. It's perfectly okay to put a flashback bang grenade in someone's <laughs> mouth and blow their head yeah. off. Sean. But one breast. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to America in 2019. Also, there okay? are so many butt shots. Like, yeah. there are so many <laughs> shots that open with, like, a woman walking across the screen, like, and it's just, like, she's, she's wearing, like, like yeah. And it's, like, a, it's like a bad era. Yeah, it leaves a lot to the yeah. imagination. I mean, true. I'm just saying. From, from boom to boobs, we really, we covered it all here, guys. <laughs> this has been a conversation about Six Underground. Chris, thanks for your, your hey, generosity. Hey, guys. You really, you showed us what's at the heart of the fascist male in this country. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Chris Ryan is gone, but Amanda and I are still here. Amanda, we're going to talk quickly about the SAG Awards. The nominations came out this week. Some interesting revelations here. What did you make of how the Screen Actors Guild decided to put this awards race uh, in a new direction. It's their right. And I mostly was disappointed in myself because there were a couple things that happened, especially in the outstanding performance by a cast in a motion picture, which is the SAG Awards version of Best Picture. It's the Ensemble Award. That I sh- I had even predicted, and I let the Golden Globes knock me off the strength of my convictions, and then I should have stuck with them. And I'm speaking specifically about Bombshell which was nominated for the ensemble performance. And Charlize Theron was nominated for Best Actress, which she is a lock. Um, Margot Robbie was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, which we have also been predicting. And Nicole Kidman was also nominated for Supporting Actress. And I had this on my original Best Picture predictions because I was like, actors will love this movie. And then Golden Globes didn't love it. And I was like, oh, but of course actors love this movie. And of course this is still in the in the race. And I think... That that is an important thing to remember is that a large number of actors vote for the Academy Awards. It's a it's by far the biggest body out of all the all, all the various guilds, and you're completely right. I didn't see it coming either, but it makes total sense. You've got a real a lot of really winning people in Charlize and Nicole Kidman. You've got two people who are are frequently honored, who are really there's a ton of respect for both of them. And in Margot Robbie, you you have somebody who's basically just picking up the mantle that Nicole Kidman started like 25 years ago, she's kind of having her career in a very similar fashion. She's got a lot of control of the projects that she picks. She's really talented. She's beautiful. And she's trying to make a statement about the kind of actor that she wants to be with every part that she picks. And it's paying off. The Nicole Kidman nomination in the, in the supporting car- category is like clear indication to me yeah. that like there's way more support for the movie than I, w- than I originally thought. Supporting actress, not the strongest category here in the first place, something we talked about during our Golden Globes conversation. So that might also be a factor, but it's a big boost for Bombshell. Also a big boost for Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. I mean, this is the other thing where we were like, oh, I guess Jojo Rabbit's fading and we should have known better. Same deal. I mean, why do you think that actors like Jojo Rabbit so much? Because isn't it daring what you can do when you can play anybody? I mean, this is like legit Scarlett Johansson, you know, I should be able to play a tree (laughs) stuff, like taken to its extreme 
that Taika Waititi should be able to play Hitler, which actors clearly believe, but they believe it so much that they nominated Scarlett Johansson in the Best Supporting category for Jojo Rabbit, along with Scarlett Johansson in the Best Actress category for Marriage Story. Very rare. I don't expect that to be the case at the Oscars. I think she'll only get the Marriage Story nomination, but we'll have to keep an eye on it. I do think that the one thing that we agreed on with Jojo Rabbit that we liked is the kids in the movie are very good, and they're very funny and charming and I, I don't I don't hate Jojo Rabbit. I just it just didn't really work on me. Like I I felt like it wasn't very funny and it also wasn't very moving. And if you're you kinda have to be one or the other for a movie of this kind, you know, I I I appreciate that they were trying to take a chance on something, but it just never clicked. I, I would agree with that. And I think part of our my resistance to it at least was like I was not ready for four months of Jojo Rabbit discourse. And we've avoided a couple of those at this point. The most they can give us now is two months of Jojo Rabbit discourse. And I don't even know if we're going to get that because it still feels like a happy-to-be-here situation. I agree. It feels like it's running in like sixth or seventh place, which if you had asked me two months ago, I would have said it wasn't going to be in the top three. You know, I think what remains there in terms of winners is um, some of the big guys that we already know. We know that The Irishman is going to do very well at the Oscars. We know that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Mm -hmm. is going to do very well at the Oscars. They were both nominated for Ensemble. One movie that we assume is going to do well, but this is probably official confirmation, is Parasite. Yes. Which, it's highly unusual for a, a, a foreign language film to get the ensemble cast nomination. Highly unusual. I think I think Life is Beautiful was the last time? Yes. 21 years so ago? And I believe this is only the second time in the SAG Awards history. So, that's like... That's great news. If you're worried about it hitting Best Picture, like, it's in. It's it's in. It's going don't to happen. Don't say that. Don't say that. I I I feel confident. Don't, I mean, just don't jinx it. Okay. I mean, let's say it, but don't jinx it. That's what I meant. I it would I, it would be what? quite an upset. I don't know. I was here just being like goodbye bombshell, goodbye Jojo Rabbit, like two days ago, I and know, now I have I to know. be like I was wrong. But those so. movies still feel like they're they're fortunate to be in the race. Whereas Parasite is the movie that a lot of film Twitter has their heart in, and a, and a lot of regular Hollywood seems to have their heart in, which is is pretty cool. I mean, I. I don't know. There's, there is just not. There's no I'm, precedent for this. I everything that you're saying is true, and I just refuse to get my hopes up. I've had them crushed before. Uh, a few of the 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 birds in my life, a few of the Academy birds, are like, watch out! It's going to win. Watch out! That'd be great. I have no idea how credible that is, but it's happening. Christian Bale. Here he is. He was there for the Globes, and he's here for the SAG Awards. Actors fucking love Christian Bale. They really do. They, they, they're like, this guy is a unicorn. He can do anything. And even though he's basically playing an elevated race car driving version of himself, people love that too. Yeah. We should also just note that Taron Edgerton, your hard work paid off, buddy. You campaign. It did. And you glad hand. Yes. And here you are. How many times do you think Taron Edgerton has applied Purell to his hands after shaking people's hands this year? I, I I don't know that Brits are as germ conscious as we oh. are, but I hope a lot. Oh. You know. I'm such an ugly American. Sake. Jesus. I'm just saying. Lupita Nyong'o. This she, is great. She bounced back from getting snubbed by the mm-hmm. Globes. I, that's nice. Cynthia Erivo. Big week for Cynthia Erivo. Yeah. Feels like that's kind of hardening. That race, might, she might have a space there. Be interesting to see what happens to, with uh, Best Actress. I, I still think that's a, a slightly confusing category mm-hmm. to me. Losers. There's a tough one here for you. Yeah, it's outlook not good for Little Women. Why do you think this is? This is a true ensemble piece. I have some unkind thoughts and some thoughts that I'll share, which I think 
it is probably it's coming out on Christmas Day and people haven't seen it in the same way that they've seen a lot of these other movies. And I think also it's there's resistance to a, a period drama adaptation that's been made before. I think there are a lot of people who are just like, why do I need to see this? And that's a bummer. But it just kind of is what it is. And those two together maybe just mean that it doesn't have the reach. I'm not counting it out yet. Yeah. The Oscar race is longer than this race. We don't even have Oscar shortlists yet. You know, we don't even know what the voting is going to be like. And in fact, the way that things happen at the Globes will have a significant impact on people, how people vote. And I think the movie is probably going to be a hit, which will be helpful, even though the season has been has been shortened this year and 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 there's not as much time to to kind of stew on these things. It is notable, like Saoirse didn't even get nominated in the Best Actress category. Know, that's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Also a bit surprising is the absence of the two popes here. No nominations for Jonathan Price or Anthony Hopkins. And that's not a good sign. They're, the two popes obviously had, shot out of a cannon at Telluride. People were like, this is the sleeper surprise that, you know, we thought it was going to be Jojo Rabbit. You thought it was going to be A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood or Joker. It's actually the two popes. This is the feel-good movie that's going to take over. And it really hasn't happened. It really, it got a little bit of a bounce from the Golden Globes, but. I mean, it's late again. I I, I just honestly think late yeah. December is too late to let people see your movie. What about The Farewell? This one's a bummer. Yeah. I, I've always been a little dubious of this this movie's power in the big race. Okay. Um, we'll see what happens. Marriage Story in 1917. Now, why do you have these on the list here? They were not nominated an ensemble. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? It doesn't actually mean very much. I think it was pointed out that the ensemble and Best Picture normally do overlap, but the two exceptions are the last two winners for Best Picture, which are Shape of Water and Green Book, which were not nominated in the Best Ensemble SAG category, and uh, won Best Picture. Yeah, and I wonder if that means that all this prognosticating and analysis that we've just been doing for the last 10 minutes is meaningless because the Academy is changing so much that maybe SAG doesn't mean as much as it once did. I think we found that in general, that even the last couple of years when we try to apply historical analysis, the exceptions are always in the last five years. Yeah. Because the Academy is changing and how we watch movies are changing as well. Yeah. And as you note here, Adam Driver, ScarJo, and Laura Dern were all individually nominated. So despite no best ensemble, even though the movie does have a great ensemble, Alan Alda and Merritt Weaver and Ray Liotta, there's so so many great performances in the movie. It kind of makes sense because it's such a centerpiece performance kind of movie. And... It also it really just feels like Laura Dern is going to win. Yes. Which, I, I don't know, just feels like a repeat of last year's supporting actress race with Regina King, where it's just like, this is done. She's got it. This is going to be boring for the next three months. I don't know. It's not a bad thing. I love Laura Dern. Who doesn't love Laura Dern? Right. She's, she's literally a genius actress to me, but it just makes it less interesting. No Robert De Niro here. Correct. He's getting the SAG Lifetime Achievement Award. So he'll be there. He'll be there. It was helpfully pointed out to me by a few people that he's also a producer of The Irishman, so he's being recognized at the Globes, even though he wasn't nominated for Best Actor. But two in a row is not a great sign. And Best Actor is very competitive. And I thought he would have been a lock. And both Pesci and Pacino were nominated Mm -hmm. here at SAG. Could he slip out? I think it's possible. It's not the flashiest performance in that movie. And a lot of people are very mad at how he moves or something. I don't know. I, I read your takes. I don't like them, but I read them. <laughs> you can't even, you shouldn't be revealing that. You shouldn't okay. be telling people that you're looking, that you that you I, know how they feel. Everyone knows that I prepare, you know? And here's the other thing. If you put information out there, then it's something I can use against you at some point. So I'm going to collect all the information. It's, it feels very dangerous to be podcasting with you. Uh, <laughs> 
Next week, Amanda and I will be back. We'll be talking about Richard Jewell and Bombshell and maybe a few other things that are happening with the Oscars. Now let's go to my conversation with the actor, Paul Walter Hauser. I'm delighted to be joined by the star of Richard Jewell, Paul Walter Hauser. Thanks for being here, man. Of course, Sean. Thanks for having me. Paul, uh, where'd, you, where'd you come from? Where, tell, tell me about your life. I feel like you, a lot of people saw you in I, Tanya, but this is your first big time leading role. I don't think people know a lot about you. I want to hear who you are. Well, I was one of the original garbage pail kids, but thanks to a lawsuit, I was able to get some constructive sort of cosmetic surgery. Uh, so what you see before you, this is as good as it's going to get. You know? uh, I apologize for this appearance. No, I, I was born in Grand Rapids, Michigan, son of a pastor and a teacher. Uh, I have three siblings. I grew up in Saginaw, Michigan, near Flint, which I'm sure you're most um, aware of, unfortunately, uh, for the wrong reasons. And... Um, just kind of grew up lower to middle class uh, Protestant and was obsessed with movies and just went from loving comedy with Jim Carrey, Chris Farley, Robin Williams into, I think the first movie that had an impression on me was A Few Good Men. And that was like where I was like, okay, well now I'm going to start watching grown up movies uh, at the age of 10, 11 years old. One of our favorites here. If you could. Oh man, I can quote the whole stupid movie. Yeah. It's amazing. Maybe we shouldn't waste our time doing that, but I could do the same. Um, what is it like trying to become an actor and move out to Hollywood coming out of a place like that? Ten Hut. There's an officer on deck. Wolfgang Bodison, baby. <laughs> Going from assistant to supporting actor in a motion picture. What happened to him? You know what? I My buddy, Matt Ryan, uh, this filmmaker dude who's, who's a buddy of mine, he did a movie called The Appearing, like a low-budget uh, horror film. And Wolfgang Bodison's in it. And he's like pretty good. Really? Like he's... Dude can still act. I think he still works sometimes. I feel like he does like a sliding doors thing where he didn't get the looks that he deserved. No, he didn't. It's really weird. He should have been the next Delroy Lindo and we dropped the ball, Sean. <laughs> what was your question? I just went nuts. No, no. That's that tells me a lot about how you feel about movies. You would fit in really well here. I'm sure. Um, but you're so you're obsessed with movies and you're living in Michigan. Yeah, and you're like, I'm, I'm going to be an actor. This is going to be easy for me. I'm going to get out to Hollywood, and I'm going to I'm going to be in movies. <laughs> I don't know about the easy for me part. I think I think I I didn't know if I would ever make it. I just knew I was going to try like insanely to to do it. I like one of my favorite movies was and still is Rudy, and that's like you know I watched him trying to get into Notre Dame, and that's how I felt about Hollywood. I was like I'm the underdog guy who doesn't look like a movie star and and is from the Midwest with no nepotistic contacts. So I. I'm I'm trying to break into this weird, difficult thing that has a really small chance of happening. But I it was all immersion. So it was really like watching SNL every Saturday night, reading and writing screenplays, doing stand-up comedy, getting headshots, trying to get local representation in the Midwest, um, going to every movie opening weekend, renting older movies, trying to get familiar with Billy Wilder, Sidney Lumet, stuff like that. It was just... Total immersion is the word I keep kind of going back to. And then at what point do you start booking real jobs? When do you become a working actor? I had little like glimpses of stuff happening early on where like I I booked a commercial when I was 19, like a local commercial. I I remember getting paid like $600 for what was essentially six, seven hours of work. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this isn't, you know, this is real, you know? And, uh, I, I did stand up, So I opened for Pauly Shore and Dave Attell and, and had little tiny gigs here and there. But the big thing was I, I went to be a background extra in a movie. It was called Virginia with Jennifer Connelly and sure. Ed Harris. Yeah. I remember that. And 
I just want to be an extra. They take your photo and they ask, you know, if you have a special skill, if you play the saxophone, we might need that or whatever. So I was there for five minutes, thought I was about to leave. And I saw Dustin Lance Black, the guy who won the Oscar for writing Milk. So I, all I did was walk up to him and tell him the truth. I spent 45 seconds at most. I just said, hey, man, congrats on your Oscar win. I, I love Milk. And I loved your speech when you said God doesn't hate gay people to the youth of America. I thought that was so beautiful and important to say. So thank you for saying that, man. Congrats. That was it. And he goes, what's your name? I th- almost thought I was in trouble because he looked at me, you know, kind of <laughs> sideways. And uh, I was like, Paul Hauser? And he writes my name down. And he goes, we're going to bring you back. I think there might be a part for you. And then I, I ended up booking the number six on the call sheet behind Amy Madigan, Emma Roberts, Toby Jones. Like, it was insane. That that was my first job, making like 12 grand working 10, 12 days on a movie in my home state with Oscar winners. Did you ever ask Dustin what he saw, why he did that? He was like, I just connected to this guy. I saw something in this guy. He, I mean, I had two auditions. I went in with like 15 other locals, 10 or 15 guys. But like these were guys who like might not have even done high school theater. They just kind of looked the part of the the sort of heavy set bumpkin he was looking for. And uh, so I was I was like psychotic. I was treating it like I was treating the scrimmage like a Super Bowl. You know, I was I was really dead serious. And um, so I think he liked my acting in general. He got a little teary-eyed in the callback when me and this actor, Harrison Gilbertson, did this scene where I'm in jail and we're talking with the plexiglass between us. So that was, you know, he, he said he said when we premiered at TIFF, he, he had this moment at the Toronto Film Festival where he, he introduced everybody and he said, out of thousands, there was one. And I got choked up before he brought me out because I was just like, I didn't, I had no idea that he saw thousands of people for the role. You know, that was insane. So that was my entry into the business. And I moved to LA and, and got going and had, you know, 10 different day jobs in four and a half years, five years or whatever. I was going to ask you, like, how does one make a living when they're in that phase? I'm always so interested in that time. Well, here's the most messed up part about it. And people, I don't even know if people believe me when I say this, but I'm telling you, it's the truth. I remember in 2010 trying to find a day job because my my bank was running low from Virginia. I might have had $3,500 left and rent was like half that. So I went online and just scoured the internet for jobs in or around Hollywood. And I believe the number, if I'm not mistaken, was 62 or 65 jobs I applied for from from working security to like making subway sandwiches. I couldn't get a job. And that summer I booked a guest star on it's always sunny in Philadelphia. And that gave me like five or six grand to get me through the summer into the autumn and keep like going paycheck to paycheck. So in truth, living in Hollywood at the age of 23, I had a better shot at getting on television than making your sandwich. And that's how messed up this town is. This is a real company town, though. That says a lot. That's really interesting. Also, you had a it's credit wrong. on a big movie. I wouldn't say that that's true. Well, it true wasn't for a every, big movie. But as a, nobody, with, nobody with some saw well known that folks. Movie. That's true. Yeah. But okay. So was there ever a moment when you were like, I got to leave? I can't hack it? That did happen. You left. I left for a year and 10 months because I ran out of money. It was March of 2011. I'd only been in town a year, maybe less, because I was leaving to see family and stuff for holidays. March 2011, I auditioned for a guest star on Bones, and I get the call back. Were you a and, big Bones guy back then? Oh, who isn't? <laughs> but I'm I'm sort of a big, like, I'm an anatomy guy in general. You're like, sure? I watch Bones, I watch Flesh. 
I watch thoughts. I watch ideology. I'm kind of like all over the sure, place. Sure, yeah, the, the whole body. metaphysical experience. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Somebody who gets it. Um, <laughs> I watch eyes. Um, so, so that was meta. I watch eyes. Well done. Um, it's it was the thing of like I I was just trying to get anything. You know, I was like the dumbest job. I was like, okay, I'll take it. I just want to stay here. And I didn't book the job. I was officially out of money. That guy, Matt Ryan, who I mentioned, who was a filmmaker, I was sleeping on his floor in Hollywood, a hardwood floor with a blanket. And eventually it just got bad and I couldn't stay there. And I called my parents crying and I go, I got to come home. You know, I messed up. So I left for a year and 10 months. I worked at a bowling alley. I worked for One Reverse Mortgage uh, over at um, the Quicken Loan Fellows in Detroit. I worked at a butcher shop in a market. Like I just... Floated around, eventually got back to Chicago, did some improv, worked at a Starbucks 40 hours a week, and then came back to L.A. January 2013. What clicked when you came back? Why did it work this second time? Why did, Why were you able to book more jobs? Why were you able to— I was it? just a better adult. I think I just lacked maturity. You know, my 23 is probably most people's 19 or 18, mm. uh, if I'm being completely honest. Um, I'm a little stunt. I've always been a little stunted in my maturity, just now in my sort of— figuring things out. Um, but yeah, I, I came back and just doggedly worked day jobs until I got to quit all my day jobs in March of 2015. So this March will be the five year anniversary of like only acting for a living. How did you make that decision in 2015 and say like, I did it. I can only do this. Is it just a, an accounting question or is there like something emotional that goes it, into making that choice? It's got a lot more to do with accounting than emotion because emotion tells you, of course, you're, you you want to quit in four seconds. But, um, I was working at flappers comedy club at the time in Burbank. I was like a door guy. Um, they treated me incredibly well there. They knew I was kind of like half miserable. Cause I just wanted to, you know, it's weird when you work at a place too, where like celebrities and actors and people are coming in all the time and no one recognizes you. And they're kind of, some of them even mistreat you. And you're kind of like, you son, you know, like you're, you're just yeah. thinking in your head, you're like, oh gosh, I just want people to know, you know. It's like seeing the hierarchy in, in real time. It's like you're here and they're here yeah. and that's it. It's got to be how those food trucks feel when they go to one of those like parks where there's 30 food trucks and there's like <laughs> 90 million people at the Cousins Main Lobster and then they're like, why don't you want my cake pops? You know, like that's. <laughs> I that's, love cake pops. That's, I do too. Jesus. Damn it. <laughs> uh, no. So yeah, it's, uh, that's how I was feeling. So I. I think I just hit a number. My my buddy wrote me into this show called The Night Shift. He gave me a guest star on this procedural. And that was a huge help. That was between doing Kingdom with Frank Grillo and Matt Loria uh, on DirecTV's Audience Network and doing this guest star. I think I had amassed like, I had about 10 or 15K. And I was like, I think I can kind of keep this going for a minute. And then what really helped was my manager or my agent, who's now my manager, this guy, Brian Walsh. He, um, the season one of kingdom, I was just a co-star. So I was making $1,200 an episode. It was nothing, but I was doing monologues and like killing people. And like, I pulled my pants down. Like I had like intense dramatic work that I was getting paid co-star money for. So season two, when they asked me back for 14 out of 20 episodes, my agent, who's now my manager said, you got to pay this kid. So they came back with a number that was like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. I'm going to, I'm going to be okay. It's really amazing. Who are the people that you aspire to? Because as you say, you're not you're not a you're not a Brad Pitt type. You're not a Julia Roberts type. No. But also, mostly the Julia Roberts thing because I'm a guy. That's a that's a factor, which I think is 
bull roar. Excuse Th- my language. Th- things are changing right now. You know, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of fluidity at the moment. But, but who who are the people that you really looked up to as actors? I wish we had more time to talk about fluidity. <laughs> I'm sick of just shortchanging that entire conversation well, topic. Maybe not um, on this show, but my, some, some other show. <laughs> my guys are uh, Paul Giamatti, John C. Riley, John Goodman, Sam Rockwell, Peter Sarsgaard, Michael Shannon, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like those are those are my dudes. Um, I just like the misshapen, broken, but beautiful character actor who can uh, sort of be proficient in comedy and drama. That's my thing. That's And that's, that is exactly the lane that you're pursuing. And I feel like I, Tanya is like sort of the perfect fusion of those two things. That's an ostensibly very serious movie that, it, and that you are hilarious in. Oh, thanks, man. And I, yeah. I, I imagine that that was like, how much of that can you bring to a movie and say, this is my vision for the kind of parts that I like to play versus what's on the page. Can you, are you able to kind of move inside of the parts or do you have to just stick to what's there for you? I think it depends on the director. I usually, you know, I've, man, I just have a thing where I don't want to ask uh, permission. I'd rather ask forgiveness. So I kind of improvise at auditions. I improvise on set. It's about finding, it's about finding the tone and knowing what is vital in the scene. A guy like Vince Vaughn, when he improvises, it's like, um, hey, everybody, we're going to have a party. Yeah, I'm going to talk for 40 minutes. You know, it's a, that's a different type of improv. Mm-hmm. My improv is usually five to ten words that are strategically placed to stay within the story and character, but to add humor depth. Are you game so, planning the day before when you're thinking about that? Not, stuff? not it's even. All, it's all in the moment. It's, it's, well, it's like within the hour before we shoot. Okay. I'm looking over. I already have it memorized. I have most of it sort of thought out. And then I'm like, oh, that's like, like the perfect example would be I was looking over my lines for Itania. I had a line in the bar with Sebastian Stan where I say, I know a guy, uh, Derek. Charges about a thousand bucks. I'll figure it out for you. And I saw that and I'm like, this guy's trying to be like sneaky. Wouldn't it be funny if he said, I know a guy, I shouldn't even be saying his name, <laughs> Derek. <laughs> Just say Derek. So, like, that was totally an improv that I put in there. And then when they yelled cut, the whole crew cracked up. And the, you know, Steven Rogers, the writer, was so gracious. He had a perfect script, but I kept messing with it and he was fine with it. So, so yeah, no, I try to put my stamp on stuff without it feeling um showy and uh and i think kingdom and black Klansman and i Tanya were the perfect avenues for me to kind of do that and 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 show who i am to maybe have a moment like this and get to kind of star in something yeah you so you ha- you have like a real comic sensibility in all three of those parts yeah and richard jewell i would say is not very funny no i try to play it grounded there's some obvious comedy for sure like uh you know, comedy from the truth of certain things. Sure. Like, Situational, God, Richard, though. you got a freaking hand grenade in your room? <laughs> That's like, true. Why don't, you, why don't you show us your, you know, do you, do you have a bombing map or something? <laughs> like, you know, it, there are things that are funny, but I think they're rooted in the truth rather than the sort of playfulness I've employed in the past. Well, uh, help me understand how you became Richard Jewell, because the, the mo- movie and the script have been around for a little while. Clint yeah. only recently became attached to it. He had been circling it for four or five years, and I think he almost made the version with, like, Jonah and Leo back in 2014, 2015. Um, but, but yeah, I, I didn't know anything about the real incident. I just knew of the project because, once again, my, my dumb ass knows more about Hollywood than the real world. 
which is a problem in and of itself I'm it's, working it's on. It's a problem for me as well. I just read Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris's autobiographies. That was like a big deal for oh. me. I was like, I am learning about the people I'm considering voting for. Like, you, I am an adult. You heard that Kamala dropped out though, right? Are you kidding? <laughs> You're kidding. No, I'm not kidding. She's out. I'm sorry, man. Breaking news here on the podcast. Are you being funny? I can't tell if you're doing a bit or not. I'm not doing a bit. She dropped out of the race. Do are you, you not kidding? Know are we? Are you, are you doing a bit with me? No, doing a bit? my gosh, no. But I would. I'm the type of person. Who I, I will. know. I'm, I, I will inception you until I, you. I, I've pass been fucked out. with on this show. I I did not know she dropped out. This, so this is a perfect I like metaphor. Her. Yeah, I like her too. Oh well. Oh, that sucks. He's still there. So you got that information. <sighs> well, apparently. A ton of people hate Pete Buttigieg, apparently. I like him. Oh, well. Um, anyway, there is no hope for America. Biden's out punching people in the face and getting mustard stains on his white shirt. How can we trust this son of a bitch? No, um, no. anyway, uh, I found Richard Jewell through sort of, you know, the obvious, which is you watch footage and you go, this is their, this is their energy. You can get energy from someone in line at Starbucks. You only need 90 seconds to really vibe someone's energy sometimes. So it was starting with energy, looking at his posture, looking at the moments where he could crack a smirk or a smile or a laugh versus the moments where he's, uh, you know, drowning in the severity of the situation and sort of just like trying that that invisible clothing on. And um, boy, that sounded like some BS actor crap. The you invisible got, clothing. This is, is what you now, though. You're, uh, you're, you're in an awards race. You're in a Clint Eastwood uh, movie about a real life incident. I'm in an awards race. I'm in an awards race about as much as someone else's, as much as I'm in a marathon race, like uh, running literally. <laughs> I um, don't know, man. I wouldn't be. It's I wouldn't a heavy be year. I mean, you've already, you already were honored year. this week. It what? No, I mean, I'm getting these breakthrough things, which is like, oh, this is. I mean, I didn't expect that. That was amazing. Getting on lists for IndieWire and The Ringer and like that does mean something to me. That's 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 wild. You let's, know? Let, let's go before we get too far into that. I want to hear more yeah. about the movie, though. What, like what did Clint say he saw in you to do it? Because as you said, Jonah was attached for a while. It's, you know, wh- how did it become you? So this is a weird story. And I think this says a lot about Clint, which will clue you into him. You know what? When Robert Pattinson did Good Time, it was literally because he saw a photo still from a Safdie movie and contacted them. That's how they have crazy that and cool that guy yeah. is. So Clint, in a similar fashion, was gearing up to do a movie in Hawaii. They were literally past development into pre-pro and scouting, almost casting, I think. And then Jeff Micklat, his casting director, and Jessica Meyer, one of his producers, printed out a photo of me and a photo of Richard and put them side by side on like a corkboard. And they called Clint into the office, kind of half kidding, because they knew he wanted to make the film. They knew he was sort of looking for a way in to make it, like some missing puzzle piece. And so they half-jokingly, half-serious were like, hey, is this your Richard Jewell or what? And he looks at it and kind of does a squint, and he goes, yeah, that's the guy. That's him. Give me some, give me some tape. What, what was he in? What, what did he do? So they jogged his memory and said, you know, you saw Itani and Black Klansman. They, they showed him the footage or scenes of me again, showed him scenes from Kingdom. And probably a composite of 10 to 15 minutes of footage, he went, yeah, that's the guy. So within that week, they called me while I was in Thailand doing a Spike Lee movie and said, we'd like you for the role of Richard Jewell, um, which is nuts. Yeah, but that, I want to know your reaction to that. It's it's. It must when, have been mind-blowing. When does this drop, by the way, this podcast? The day the film will be released on the 13th. 
Okay, so so this Kamala Harris stuff is going to be super old by then. Yeah, this is going to be. <laughs> so there's a yeah, there's there's like a weird piece of information I don't know if I can drop or not yet, but but essentially what I'll tell you is this: I was offered a TV deal for a limited series to star in a limited series, more lucrative than anything I've ever done in my life, and coming from the background of being a pastor teacher's kid, where their combined salary might have been fifty k, and they had four kids in private school, um, that was like that was hard to look at and go, I have to do this or the Clint Eastwood movie. And Clint's movie wasn't an offer. It was a verbal offer because the movie was at Fox. Disney bought Fox and Clint only works at Warner. Yep. So they were entangled in sort of a legality thing, trying to get that worked out. But they said, this is a verbal offer. You can't do the TV show and the movie. They're working at the same time. Um, And there were other similarities that were just undeniable that I couldn't do both. So I said, you know, I'm, I'm because of, I grew up in the church and, and, and I'm a Christian. I kind of said, you know, the Bible talks about operating out of fear or love. You can't operate out of both. The two can't like abide. So I said, fear would tell me to take the money and do the TV show, which is a real offer. But love would tell me you got to work with Clint Eastwood if you get an opportunity to work with Clint Eastwood. So I turned down the TV show. They went out to someone else, a, a good buddy of mine who's super talented and that project kept moving. And then I had three weeks alone in Thailand, having made that decision, waiting to go back to L.A. to find out if the movie was happening or not. So I was in agony. And at that time, I also got a bacterial infection and was vomiting on set of Spike's movie the last couple of days. So, like, it was it was just a really emotional and physical draining moment for me. Um, and I thought, well, I either turned down... Six, six serious figures or I'm starring in a Clint Eastwood movie. Like that's the reality. Um, and sure enough to his word, Clint had me on the Warner brothers lot early to mid May and said, we're, we're shooting in six weeks. Gear up. That's an unbelievable story. I feel like that anxiety that that provoked is probably kind of helpful for the part too. Oh yeah. Cause you're trapped in this nether world of not <laughs> knowing what's going to happen. You and know? it also never went away. Cause I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, they could have got other dudes for this. They could have got Jesse Plemons. Matt Damon could have put on 50 pounds, whatever. <laughs> like there's other ways to make this movie. Um, but Clint said, you are the guy. You are the only guy who can play this. You're the only one I want playing it. And he just had an instinct. And then as we were filming and we we're doing those emotional scenes and stuff, I think, a lot more of the producers and cast were kind of like, yeah, you're the you're the dude, man. You're the dude. It's unbelievable. It's weird. It's crazy. So, so I guess when you're making a movie like this, are you throwing yourself into the life of the person? How, how are you figuring out how to play a part like this? Because it feel it does feel authentically different from anything I've seen you in before. And I don't how do you transform? I mean, I can I, I think you've seen me play a lot of just sort of sl- like lethargic buffoons and stuff. So I do that well and I'm happy to do it for a long time, but there's a ton of shit I can play. I mean, I can, there are things people don't, there are things my family don't know about me that I can do. You know, like I, I think, I think we all have pieces of us that may or may not come out in our lifetime, you know? And I think being an actor is really fun because you get to show all that. Um, and you know, on my Instagram page, I, I, I literally do characters all the time, like an SNL audition. I'm just like, whatever funny, weird thing comes to mind that I would share with a close friend, I put up on Instagram all the time. And sometimes they're serious and sometimes they're dumb. And sometimes they're me literally doing my take on the penguin, trying to audition for <laughs> the new Robert Pattinson Batman movie, you know, like, um, so, so, you know, I don't some, think you got the part. 
I don't think I did either. Okay, I'm sorry. I think <laughs> I hate uh, to break it to you. I listen, not, not a beautiful dark eyed, a beautiful dark eyed man <laughs> with a widow's peak got it, and uh, and I totally get the 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 choice. That's tough. He doesn't look like the penguin. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, but Heath Ledger didn't look like the Joker. That's true. That's true. You know, and I we love, can all transform. You transformed into Richard Jewell. I love Colin Farrell. Um, when I played Richard Jewell, it was very. Very much just trying to get the the energy, the mannerisms. The voice was a whole thing because if you look him up on YouTube and listen to him speak, it's way more, and I don't say this to be offensive. I'm just trying to pinpoint it for everyone. His Southern accent is on a cartoonish level. Yeah, it's country. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's real country. Yeah. It's country strong, Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> Hashtag Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's incredibly strong. And I, I heard Mahershala Ali because I'm such an actor like, fanboy i heard him in all these interviews say that when he did green book he had to lower the register of the high pitch voice of the guy he played and he said you know he didn't want the voice to be distracting and i thought that is smart and and pete sarsgaard did the same thing playing bobby kennedy and jackie he's like i'm not going to do an impression or a caricature of the kennedy you know accent so i just figured i have to really you know find my between place between my voice and Richard's and honor it without it being distracting. So once I caught that, it was like, that was a big load off. Once that, once I found that voice, it was, it was a lot easier as far as the emotion, you know, and having those serious moments with Kathy and Sam, that's just not hard to do when you have Clint Eastwood staring at you and you're working with Sam and Kathy who both have statues. I mean, that's, that's like wondering how you want a basketball game when you, when you have like, you know, Dirk and Nash on on your bench. Like that's like, yeah, but that's the thing is you're the fulcrum of the movie. You're not, they're on the bench and you're, you have to run. And I said, before we started taping, like those scenes to me are when the movie is just completely alive is when there's all this anxiety in the room and the three right. of you guys interacting. It's just right. so great. Um, I guess I'm, 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 I'm curious about Clint because there's so much mythology about the way that he makes movies and one or two take Clint yeah. and the efficiency of his sets. Like did it live up to as a as a as a movie nerd what you expected it to be? How was it different? If you ever call me a nerd again, I'm sorry. You're I will a, flip a, this a table like Christ in the temple. I'm sorry. Um, I'm kidding. I I I am a big time nerd, and being with Clint was it should have been more intimidating than it was. He just sort of has a way of reminding you that he's he's a guy. You know, he's he's just a dude. He um. He loves movies himself. All the stories he tells are usually very self-deprecating in nature. And um, and he he knows that you're honored to be there. He's he's aware of it, but he doesn't use it against you. I've I've met people who kind of use it against you, where they're kind of like, Yeah, I know who I am, and they kind of change their posture in a in a bit. And and Clint just keeps the same posture, whether he's talking to the guy at the gas station or talking to Spielberg, you know, which which I love. I love that. I think on set, when I heard one or two take Clint, I was like, well, I'm screwed because I, I, I thrive off multiple takes. Um, I like the Adam McKay thing of like you get it two or three times safe and then you improv and try a bunch of stuff. So I was very concerned. And I knew the best thing I could do was to ground the performance. I knew that even if even if people didn't talk about me during award season, even if people were like, you were the fifth best actor in the movie. The best thing I could do was ground the performance and not overreach. So that was my only aim the entire shoot was to ground, to listen, and not overreach. Um, and I'm proud of that because I, I think I stayed in that lane for the most part. 
But I would say I had three to five takes. You know, a lot of them were three or four takes. And do you think that it's possible that it helped that the fact that you weren't roaming, you weren't trying stuff, kept you in the in the that same lane every time? It occurred to me when I was watching because I I I was aware of the fact that you would you would improv at timed. Yeah, but I feel like. It, the character's so consistent and the performance is so consistent and it like it could get cartoonish if the movie is made differently. Yeah, I I watched some documentaries before watching the movie. Not even on the movie, I just mean documentaries in general because I think sometimes the best way to study acting isn't to watch acting, it's to watch humans. And so when I went in to do that it was it was important to feel like the camera was capturing me, not like I was trying to attract or capture the camera. And I've done both. And you can tell sometimes when I'm doing it, which is uh, fortunate or unfortunate, pending the moment. So I, I really wanted to live in that space and sort of throw it all away and, and, and be minimalist, I guess would be the word. That's what you're kind of hinting at, too, of like yes. not overreaching, being minimalist, you know? Yeah. Um, you have a lot of big movies coming up. Like, has your career changed even more than from that moment in 15 when you were like, I'm staying? Like, does it feel like you're doing almost like a different job now? Like, you have another Spike Lee movie coming. You're in yeah. a Disney movie soon. Well, like, is your life significantly different? The significant changes that have occurred would be I'm busy in a way that's difficult. Before I was busy in a way that was like, I'm, I'm you know, I'm keeping myself spinning some plates. Now it's literally like, some days I have, I have to answer 60 texts. I'm like, this is put a bullet in me. Like, I don't want to do this. This is exhausting. And, I'll, and, and so like that alone or, or just flying all the time, I think, you know, in the last, what is the date today? The sixth, I believe it's my mother's birthday. Happy birthday. Late mom. I'm going to call you later. Um, is she, I highly doubt she listens to this. Show. She's obsessed with Bill Simmons. <laughs> So, but anyway, anyway, uh, in the last two weeks, I've flown from London. No, in the last three weeks, I've flown from London to LA to London to New York to LA. And I'm back to New York today to fly to Atlanta in four days to fly back to LA a day later to fly to Michigan a week and a half later and then back to LA. So it's like, sounds chill. It's <laughs> it's freaking exhausting. <laughs> Sick of airports. No, it's, it's what I dreamt of, obviously, but I, I, I would say the aggressive schedule and having to tell dear friends of mine that like, I'll see you in January and it's like late November. It feels gross. It feels tough. You know, I feel like Henry Rowan Gardner and rookie of the year. I'm like, I want to play guys, but I'm throwing fastballs, man. Un un I can't unbelievable do it. reference. Way, oh, way to go. Don't get me started on that. Um, Wait, go run a mucker. So, What's Albert your what's Hall. your what's your dream now? You got your dream. You're the star of a major motion picture released by Warner Brothers, directed yeah. by Clint Eastwood. This is insane. Yeah. Now, now, what do you, what do you have to aspire to? To have a woman be attracted to me. <laughs> That's on my bucket list. Paul, you're so vulnerable in this For conversation. F's sake. <laughs> Sean, I'm just talking to you the way I talk to all my friends, man. I, I love don't, it. There's no barrier, bro. This is just what you see is what you get. There's a plane, trains, and automobiles reference. Um, can you tell I watch movies <laughs> on my epitaph? It's going to say he wasted time watching VHS. No, tips. not um, anymore. No, I, I would say my, my dreams are, uh, I, I got a bunch of dreams. I, I dream of owning a home. I dream of having a dog and a lifestyle where I can maintain a, a dog and give it a good life. Uh, I want a wife and a kid or two. I 
want to play the penguin in a standalone uh, <laughs> Warner Brothers movie. I wanna I wanna play Teddy Roosevelt in a biopic in ten Ooh, years. See, that's I wanna uh, that's host Saturday Night Live, and um, and I wanna have a lot of loving relationships with people where we can have each other's backs, and it's not just like we're friends because we're both in the industry. Like I want to, I want to have relationships where I can go get coffee when someone gets a divorce and try to like be an actual friend to people. I don't, I don't want, I can't do the shallow relationship thing. It just doesn't work with me. You're either an acquaintance or you're like a, a ride or die, but you know, buddy. It's the best answer to that question I've ever gotten. Um, we end every episode of this show by asking guests, what's the last great thing they've seen. You're a great person to ask this question. What's the last great thing you've seen? Uh, the screenplay for the live action Care Bears film. Because let me tell you, I'm about to make that fat, wet money, bro. I'm about to sell out and make that money, bro. Um, I would say the last, the last killer dope thing I saw, and I'll go from the year. I won't say like proximity of when I most recently watched it. Um, the stuff I saw this year that really affected me, that stayed with me, was uh, Chernobyl. Uh, Parasite, um, the Green Bay Packers winning, and um, good season for you. Uh, yeah, real good season, real good. I'm Aaron Rodgers reminding me he's Aaron Rodgers, and um, yeah, there's a couple performances I just want to say really quick that that meant a lot to me. I loved my buddy Jonathan Majors from from the new Spike Lee movie I did. He he murdered that role in Last Black Man in San Francisco. I mean, wonderfully so specific and just wonderfully nuanced and and and, and brilliant. And Shia LaBeouf and Honey Boy, I mean, shit, that, that dude just, like, wrote himself a, a new lease on his career. I think he's so talented, and he seems like he's in a good, healthy place now. So guys like Jonathan and Shia, those are the guys I, I hope I get to kind of rise the ranks with and, and work with it again at some point. Paul, as you know, I think you belong in company with them this year. Thanks so much for doing the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Paul Walter Hauser. Thanks to Amanda Dobbins. And thanks to Chris Ryan. Please stay tuned to the big picture. We'll be talking about the Oscars again next week. See you then.